Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit. All right, so I'm going to, I'll embarrass you and, and say a little little introduction that I put together and then I'll welcome you and we'll go off. Sure. Okay. This is Song Cycle, where we gab with cool people who bring their innovative ideas and projects to life to contribute to a more vibrant society through song. I'm your host, Sam Martin, founding artistic director of Cincinnati Song Initiative. Let's get into it. Whether it's performers with amazing stories from the stage, entrepreneurs and administrators who work tirelessly to push our industry forward in exciting ways, composers with an eye toward the future of song, or anybody else in this big community, I want to hear from them and share their stories with you. Okay, friends of the Song Cycle podcast, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to our very first guest of season three. This pianist has won the world over for his powerful playing and unique musical interpretations. In the world of song, he is a regular collaborator with many of today's most prominent artists, including Sir Thomas Allen, Ian Bostridge, Dame Sarah Connolly, Alice Coote, Angelica Kirchschlager, Dame Felicity Lott, Simon Keenlyside, Christopher Maltman, and Mark Padmore, to name just a few. He has been invited to curate special song programs at venues such as Wigmore Hall in London, the Royal Concertgebouw in Amsterdam, the 92nd Street Y in New York, and the Pierre Boulez Zal in Berlin. Furthermore, he can be heard at the piano in dozens of recordings, spanning repertoire from Schubert and Schumann to Barber and Britain and everything in between. And to top it all off, he can be found inspiring the next generation of pianists as a professor at both the Guildhall School in London and at Graz University in Austria. Friends of Song Cycle, it's none other than the inimitable English pianist Julius Drake. Welcome to the pod, Julius. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be speaking to you. Well, we're we're delighted to kick off season three speaking with you and to get a little bit of an insight into your life and career and all the different facets of it. And so thank you for spending some time with us. To get started, just I mean, tell us, tell the good listeners where you are, where you're recording from today, and and what are you working on these days? I'm in London, at my home in London. Um, and uh I've I've done the first concert of my of the new year yesterday, uh, and appropriately, it was a performance of Winterheiser uh, in very wintry conditions down in Exeter with my dear friend Roderick Williams, the the British baritone, 
uh, and uh, we were raising money actually for a charity to help Afghan refugees. So it was a good way to start the year. Oh, that's really cool. And probably you've uh, no doubt played, performed countless Winterreises, but this seems special given the charitable component to it. Every Winterreise is special. It's 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 the, I suppose it's the Everest in our repertoire. And um, it's also the piece I've played most often in my career. Um, but I never will get tired of it and I can never uh, cease finding the unique moments. I, I mean, it's it's one of the greatest pieces, I think, in the whole musical canon. So I feel very privileged to be able to tackle it uh, as often as I do and uh, and do my best, try and get better at it. Yeah. Well, and to that point, you, you also play the piece and other pieces frequently, but with different collaborators, right? So. Yes. Can you give a little insight into what that is like for you working on this on, on similar repertoire with different collaborators or also working with di- a bunch of different really great singers in general? How, how does the process change, if if at all, for you? Well, it changes because you're you're working with somebody different and somebody different is going to have different ideas. They're going to have they're going to make a different sound. I mean, I've always been in love, so to speak, with chamber music, the whole ideal of chamber music, the idea that you are together with another musician making the music come to life and both of you are collaborating to bring it to life. Uh, and so it's I've always found it very inspiring working with other musicians, uh, which is why very early on when I was 18, I decided I didn't want to do solo piano. I, it didn't suit me. What suited me much better was was collaborating with someone and making the music together. And I'm still in love with that idea. And I count myself very lucky to work with so many great musicians. And of course, it's always different because everybody's different. Mm-hmm. But I I I, uh, I go to it in the spirit of collaboration and let's see what the two of us can make of this together. Um, and hopefully uh, with mutual respect, certainly respect from my point of view but presumably i'm often being asked to play because there is some respect there and so we can we can both collaborate and make make something of it sure and for anybody who uh is not a pianist or maybe a a singer or a pianist um Mm. let's take it one step further and how is your technical playing how is your imagination of what you do how is that altered based on your collaborator and the ideas that you both come up with together for a specific piece of music or a specific concert. Is your playing affected and changed based on the voice or the ideas that you both come up with? Well, the thing about a piano is it's a big instrument. And if you don't control it, even if you had the piano lid completely closed and a blanket on it, you would still very easily be far too loud for your collaborator, whether the collaborator is a a singer or a cellist or a violinist so everything when you play the piano is about controlling the sound controlling the voices the other unique thing about the piano or nearly unique thing is that we have so many different lines we're playing we're not just playing the melody line sometimes we're also playing the bass line we're playing lines in between the bass and the, the melody so those all have to be controlled and and i believe sung so everything, it's a bit, I often think of, in a way, my head is a bit like a 
a conductor and my hands are a bit like the orchestra in as much as the conductor stands there at the podium and says, we need more clarinet here or the, the violins are too loud there. In a way, I feel I'm doing that within the piano, within my two hands so that I'm bringing out the parts. And a good example of that, of course, is if you play too loudly in exactly the register of the singer, you're going to you're going to overwhelm them. But you can play equivalently loudly if you're not in the same register. So often you're going to bring out lower lines um, or sometimes higher lines because they don't absolutely conflict with with the singer's line. So it's I I, I also am a great lover of the color of a piano, the colors that you can make. And that's what I'm always trying to do. And so I, I want to have this sort of orchestral palette. Um, and that's what I'm I'm always trying to do. I love the sound. I'm a, I'm a sound merchant. It matters a lot to me, the actual sound. A sound merchant. I love it. Yeah. Okay, so let's take it back a little bit. We started to touch on it um, when you were speaking about how much you love working with singers, but so you, you do make a vast majority of your life working with singers in recital settings, I know, but from what else I know, you also have had your fingers in many other areas of piano playing over the years. So can you tell us a little bit about your musical upbringing and how it helped basically set you on a path to become this musician that you are today? Mm. Uh, well, it, it was, I was a, a, a musical boy. I, I loved playing the piano. I was I was one of those children who didn't have to be persuaded to go and practice. I always felt most happy sitting at a piano, usually daydreaming. I wasn't I wasn't a very effective practicer, but I loved sitting. <laughs> and my parents realized that I much preferred this to anything at school and were enlightened enough and brave enough, I think, to send me to a music school when I was 12. Uh, where I was happy as Larry, where I did a minimum of academic work and lots of practice and went through a lot of the piano solo repertoire uh, with my teacher uh, and the school allowing me enough hours in the day to practice, which I wouldn't have had otherwise at a normal school. And uh, when I got to 18, I went to the Royal College of Music and the first in the first term or the first week, we had to make chamber music with our peers, other first years. And strangely enough, at school, I'd, I'd hardly played any chamber music at all, despite the fact that there were lots of other musicians there. And I, I was a Damascus, Damascus moment. I, I was playing with the clarinetist, who I then um, went on to make my debut with. And I thought, this is what I want to do. This is, this is where I feel comfortable, playing chamber music with somebody else. Because I'd never, much though I loved the piano repertoire and still do, I had never felt entirely comfortable playing it in public. And suddenly I found that if somebody else was there with me and we were collaborating, I really loved the, the opportunity to, to convey the music to an audience. And when I was playing solo, I always felt a little bit tight and uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So from that moment on, I, I said to myself, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to pursue a solo career. And that gave me a head start in a way because most of my peers were coming to music college and that was their chance to really explore the piano repertoire because they'd been to normal schools. And uh, many of them also, uh, I think, later on decided to go for chamber music. Uh, but as I say, I think I had a head start. So I went out into the world at 21 and um, I've been earning my living in chamber music ever since without any 
desire to go into the world of solo. And I think that that was a help. Yeah. Um, and really, I uh, sometime in my early 20s, I fell in love with song. Uh, I had, hadn't worked with singers at all through school or through music college, uh, virtually. And um, I fell in love with, I love the extra element of the words, the languages, the fact that you knew what the music was about because the words told you, the fact that the words came first and had inspired the music, all those things I, I fell in love with and I, I still am and I feel very lucky to do so many concerts exploring this amazing repertoire. I feel that the song repertoire is one of the greatest chamber music repertoires up there with the string quartet repertoire and the piano solo repertoire. Mm -hmm. So I feel, again, I just feel very lucky to be playing this wonderful music. Yeah. S speaking to the limitless variety and, and options of the song repertoire, you've, you've been able to curate several series at different venues uh, by invitation. And so are there any that stand out in your memory particularly, or what thought do you put into curating a series? Does each of these venues come to you with a specific foundation uh, to start, or do they give you carte blanche and invite you to start with a blank canvas? How, do, how have you gone about several of your curation projects and what helps you fit music together? Well, um, I would say a variety. I mean, for instance, the Concert Cabal, in Holland came to me uh, because they were doing the complete Mahler, planning to do the complete Mahler symphonies in 2020, the anniversary, and they asked whether I might put, curate a series of the complete Mahler songs to run parallel in the small hall at the Concert Cabal. Uh, so that was a very specific request and I could put that together, choose the singers, choose and um, make the programs. That was a lot of fun. However, COVID got in the way and so we never actually did it, albeit I hope we will in 2025. Or it might be, for instance, I met with the uh, guest indoors from the Boulezal, wonderful person. And uh, she asked me, you know, so have you got any ideas of something you'd like to do? And I said, I would, I've always wanted to do a series of song and poetry. So as I said earlier, the fact that the poem came first has always fascinated me. And I, well, I've always wanted to do a series where you actually heard the poem before you heard a, a setting of it. So it, if you like, stands in its original form before the composer, the great composer, invariably great composer, heard it and, and set it to music. And so um, Kirsten said, well, let's, let's do that. So that's what I'm doing in in Berlin. So so it's a it's a very varied. It can be it can be one or it can be the other. I mean, the very first one I did in collaboration with my colleague Malcolm Martineau was at the invitation of the Wigmore Hall was the complete songs of Britain, mm -hmm. uh, a very long time ago now, but that was one of the very first series I did. So it 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 varies, but it is a very nice uh, and very valued um, adjunct in my career to to not to not. Well, in fact, I don't believe in waiting by the phone and hoping you're going to be asked. I'm, I'm, I like that that I can I can have a series and then I can invite singers to to join in, and um, that's always been an important part for me in my career. And I do say to students that being relatively entrepreneurial, I think is is in, probably increasingly important. But it's important if only for your own self-respect, so that you don't feel 
you are always an invitee. It's quite nice to be, or rather, you're always invited, but it's quite nice to actually be the person doing the inviting. In, indeed, indeed. And that that's a, that's a value of CSIs is to inspire and foster that sort of sense of entrepreneurialism and agency amongst our artists themselves. And I believe passionately the piano, the pianist is an equally important part of the team uh, if you're going to make a really successful concert. So from that point of view, then then the pianist should be the one who has the ideas and it equally has the ideas and program initiative rather than, I don't believe that the pianist is somebody who's who's secondary to the to the soloist. Without question. I believe that, that you should go to a song and you just look at the, at the face of the singer. But musically, I believe it's a collaboration between the two. And if one or other is weaker, it, it, it's a problem. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. So here I invite you to speak as candidly as you may feel because, you know, we're here to share opinions and get a varied view of, of, of opinions. And you have such a wealth of experience traveling the globe for concerts. So throughout your global travels, recitaling, um, I'm very curious if you've experienced or if you feel a difference amongst audiences in different parts of the world and how they react, receive, or appreciate song performances. Um, do, you, do you feel any sort of difference uh, depending on where you are geographically and, and how song is perceived in the culture? Well, that, it's, a, it's a good question. And it's a, it's a timely one because I've just come back a couple of months ago from being uh, in South Korea with Ian Bostridge. And we were both amazed by the audience because we, we did two performances of Interheiser and they were both in halls of about 2,000 people, and there were approximately 1,200 to 1,500 people in each, and the audience was super quiet. They had, they had surtitles um, all the way through, super enthusiastic, and an average age, wait for it, of about 25. Amazing. The older ones were 30, the younger ones were teenagers. It was, it was what that was a wonderful, and it made you realize that that most of the time the audiences we're playing to, uh, as actually in all chamber music. I mean, chamber music is something invariably that a music lover comes to later. I mean, you're often, if you're a music lover, you often fall in love with opera or you fall in love with symphony concerts, um, and later on you start to appreciate string quartets and violin duos and song so i i've always justified it from that point of view and my friend uh, who used to run the conseca bar um put it well and said well i think that uh, the most important thing is that the conseca bar runs concerts designed for children because if those children if their parents bring their children to those concerts, those children we won't see in their teens. We won't see them probably in their twenties. We probably won't see them in their thirties when they're pursuing their careers and their and their forties when with their families. But from their fifties onwards, they'll come back. But if they didn't go to any school concerts and they didn't have music as children, classical music, I mean, and weren't exposed to it, we'll probably never see them. And I think she's she's got the, hit the nail on the head creating that pipeline, basically. 
Yeah, I just think classical music has to be part of the school curriculum. The the wealth of it, the value of it, what the consolation music can give needs to be available to every child in every school so that they have heard it at some point in their life and listened and maybe appreciated, maybe not, but invariably people will come back. But if they don't ever hear it in school, and increasingly they don't, if they don't sing in school, and they increasingly they don't, if they're not taken to concerts by their parents, and increasingly they're not, then I think the whole world for them is extraordinarily diminished. Uh, and I'm astonished that so many educators or so many education systems throughout the world, it's throughout America, it's in many countries in Europe, most countries in Europe, are doing less and less of that and concentrating more and more on the parts of school that not many of us enjoy. Like in Britain, for instance, they've just announced, the, our brilliant prime minister has just announced, the radical idea that everybody has to do maths until they're 18. The fact, the fact that you can leave school when you're 16. And it seems to me that's one one sure way to make sure people more people leave school at 16. Um, so, you know, obviously I'm an artist and I passionately believe in the value of art um, and the arts. And I'm very depressed looking at the state of education. It's That's very interesting to hear about the South Korean concerts though and clearly it's not that's not the case in south korea well yeah and i was just going to say that maybe we can uh uh get a little bit of that magic over here yeah so tell us about one of your more memorable performances or projects and and i mean this can be profound this can be wacky this can be something gone terribly wrong <laughs> give 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 us a oh, little memory oh my god of something wild that happened or something fantastic that transported you well, the thing I often quote when I think of something fantastic was actually my debut at the Wigmore Hall in, ooh, I'm not going to even tell you what year it was. It was so long <laughs> ago. Um, but I was, a, I was a lad in my early 20s and five of my friends and I got together uh, and we said, we're going to do the complete chamber music for wind and piano, winds and piano of Francis Poulenc. Oh my gosh. And it was actually an anniversary of Francis Poulenc's death. And uh, we booked the Wigmore Hall and we pulled together all our resources. We were given a, um, a pretty dead slot, which was available for debutantes in those days. It was a Sunday afternoon. And we made up a program that included the oboe sonata, and the flute sonata, and the trio for oboe, bassoon and piano clarinet sonata a wonderful well finished with uh, the horn elegy and we finished with the, the with the marvelous sextet for all five of us and piano and uh it was a clever program uh and uh we were passionately committed to it uh and they were very fine young musicians and the promoter who was doing the organizing came out at about half an hour before the concert, and she came backstage and she said, there, there's a queue all around down Wigmore Street for tickets. <laughs> and we were, we were, we thought we'd be very lucky if we had a hundred people there, you know, our close friend and family. She said, I think we're gonna to have to turn people away. 
And that Sunday afternoon concert, we had indeed, we had a full house. We did have to turn people away. And um, that was, you know, a great moment for at your very, very, you know, your London debut. So that that I've never forgotten. It was one of the great moments. Well, it, it makes sense for one, if not all of the people in that group, you know, at this point in your careers to expect a queue around the building. But what was it back then when you were, when this was your Wigmore Hall debut? Did, I mean, was nobody it? Nobody knew us, you know, nobody had heard of Julius Drake then or, or, or any of my colleagues. Did you advertise yourselves or did you all have enough friends and family that? We, we pulled all our resources. We did everything we could. We put, we went around London delivering brochures as you did in those days. It was before the internet, you know, and, and, you know, we did everything you possibly could. Yes. We had, in fact, we, all of us put in uh, a certain amount of money. I can't remember how much it was now, but we all pooled our resources and, and we worked out that we, you know, we were all prepared to make a loss. Um, and yes, the word obviously got round and the fact that it was Poulenc and Poulenc was in vogue then. And that probably, I don't know, Nicholas Daniel was the oboist and he'd won the BBC Young Musician of the Year um, in the meantime. And that probably meant he was relatively well known. You know, people had seen him on TV and, you know, it was a whole combination of things. But the, the amazing thing was that it took us completely by surprise. Well, the wonderful thing was that we hadn't expected it, you know. They weren't, they weren't bookings in advance. They all came on the day, you know. Oh my gosh. That sounds, that sounds like ticket sales today. We, we never know. We never know how many people are going to wind up at our concert. So you realize you pooled all your resources. You, you, you created some sense of marketing strategy. However, however plotty it might've been you, this is a missed and it was a sellout crowd. You missed an opportunity to found your own organization after this. <laughs> It was a great way to, to start. That's great. So on this podcast, we like to ask why song? Not in a zero-sum game against other genres, but the deeper question being, what are some distinguishing characters and features um, about song that differentiate it in a special way against other classical genres, such as instrumental music or even opera? I mean, there's differences, and I'm curious to hear what yours are and and then therefore why song is important to promote and innovate i think it's mainly important because there is so much great music written for the genre and if i said that you know if you if you're a song lover you hear the greatest of schubert everybody knows that mm -hmm. but i would argue you you hear the greatest of schumann too and you you could easily argue the same for so many composers, Debussy, Faure, Sibelius, Charles Ives. The list goes on and on and on. And that's without going into the, you know, mentioning the other great leader composers like Hugo Wolf and Johannes Brahms. Uh, so many great composers found their their most intimate inspiration when they were setting words, mm -hmm. something particularly close to their heart, something that was definitely a private thing that it really, something in the poem that really moved them. And they would find this very intimate genre, very inspiring. Um, I love that picture of Brahms sitting in his, in his, a room full of books, just reading poems, just looking for the inspiration for those songs. It's a very private thing. It's it's 
it's much less daunting for them and much less public than, for instance, sitting down and writing a symphony. Yeah. And so I think we have this unique repertoire. And if you were only playing second rate music, then I think the genre wouldn't be so valuable. But the fact is, there's so much great music out there. Mm-hmm. So that's my number one reason for thinking it's very important. And the number two reason is a similar one, really, to all chamber music, which is that it's it's a private communication, really. It's something very um, spare and basic, just two people communicating with a crowd of a few hundred people. Mm-hmm. It's quite a different thing from being part of a, a, as an audience member, being part of a large audience and going to hear a an opera or going to hear a large orchestral concert thrilling though that is and and equally valid it's just a very different thing and i think the intimacy that chamber music and song can offer is um invaluable yeah that's true i completely agree one of the other things i love about song is that it's so varied so having said the greatest glory is the great music that so many great composers wrote. I also think the other thing I love about it is, is this so much fun music that composers wrote when they were just having fun. Yes. Um, and that might be, I don't know, Schoenberg's cabaret songs, but mm-hmm. it also might be though, you know, the wonderful Goyescas of Granados or, or the Defia songs, you know, inspired often by folk song and folk dance and all that sort of thing. And I, I love very varied recitals where you can you can hear a Schumann song cycle, but also you're going to hear something just fun. I mean, maybe a medley of Richard Rogers songs or something like that at the end. I love that variety too. I'm not, by no means somebody who's a purist and just wants um, very serious Liederabend. I think I think one of the great things is that the, the repertoire. So I mentioned some composers who weren't leader composers, but that's one of the great things that you can have songs in Scandinavian and songs in American and songs in English, songs in French, songs in German, songs in Spanish, and the list goes, songs in Russian. The Russian repertoire is so amazing. You know, it goes, the Czech repertoire is amazing. I mean, the Janacek Diary, which is a hybrid between an opera and a song cycle, is, you know, one of the most wonderful things that I ever get a chance to perform. And so it's there's so much variety. And variety, I suppose. That's that's what I don't think I would find that variety in anything else, any other world of chain music, with possible exception of the piano repertoire. Yeah, it's so the variety is so fulfilling for a programmer and someone that takes pleasure in putting a program together, especially if you're doing it in yes. collaboration with someone. Yeah. I also think that it can be fulfilling for audience members because if they develop a a sense of following a group or an artist they become invested in seeing what the programming can be over time in this sort of drawn out phase uh, and, and, and audience members, at least in our experience here, um, become invested in that way as well. They understand the depth of the repertoire and that they're always going to come and experience uh, yeah. a, different, a different journey on every concert. Well, thank you for those thoughts. So what are you looking forward to next? Well, I... Glad to say I've got lots of lovely things to look forward to. I feel very spoiled. The sum of it is I'm looking forward to collaborations with lots of different people. And I, I one of the things that's great about the world of chamber music is that 
once I'm making music with somebody, I don't really feel any difference in age from them. And so I can get an enormous amount of pleasure working with some young uh, singer in their 20s. And once I'm on stage with them and working with them, I, I forget my own age. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I certainly don't ever feel that I've got this depth of experience and knowledge which I can trans transmit to them. I don't, I don't feel that relationship at all. I always feel that they are very talented and um, I can get a lot from what they're doing, learn a lot from what they're doing and just enjoy making music with them. Even if they may be, they may be doing their first year of concerts, but they're still, there's something exceptional there. And if they're, making music on a high level then i i feel privileged to be with them so uh, that that excitement of working with lots of people lots of different ladies collaborators like gerald finley who i've worked with literally since we were in our early 20s together or mid-20s together right the way through to to brilliant young singers like fleur baron who's you know in her early 30s and really making a mark and is as passionately committed as i am and always have been to the world of song. So, you know, that's very exciting. That's really great to hear. There's a whole generation of them yeah. coming through. Fleur's by no means the only one, but and, that, and that's very exciting and, and and very exciting for me to be, to be able to work alongside them. Yeah, it's really great to hear you say that you sort of lose all sense of your age in working with a varied group of singers and, and based on their ages, because it's just so stimulating and people can the learning is a two-way street a, a multi-faceted street and it goes in both directions ideally and i certainly hope to uh be in that place that you are at some point as well too because that's just the best way to keep growing keep growing that's what that's all we're doing in music yeah life in music is just um learning learning even that sounds a bit trite doesn't it i don't know um just doing the best we can with this great music. Yeah, and that's always and and the ceiling for that or the the capacity for that is is constantly evolving. Yeah, um, yeah. I hope. I mean, yeah, that's a good point because I hope I'm better than I was exactly last year. You know, exactly. I am trying to get better all the time. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I cringe listening to recordings of myself from five, ten years ago, and then I try and zoom out and say, you know, that's normal, and I hope I've grown since then. I cringe from listening to recordings I made last week. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you, okay, Julius Drake, you 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 don't listen to your recordings from last week. You leave that to the rest of us, and we will enjoy them massively. <laughs> yeah, thank you, very kind of you. Thank you for spending this time. I, I I don't want you to be late for your next thing. Any final parting thoughts while you have this raptured audience? All power to 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 music lovers all over the world because it makes all the difference to our lives. Indeed. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you. All the best. Ciao. A huge thank you to Julius Drake for sitting down and sharing a little bit with us about his fascinating and vast career. One of my favorite parts was learning about how important he believes it is to expose children to this music in the hopes that they'll grow up with the love of attending classical concert experiences. What was your favorite part about this episode? Let me know when you rate, review, and subscribe this podcast. It's the best way to help the show reach other song lovers, and isn't that what it's all about? Catch new episodes of Song Cycle every fourth, 
Thursday of the month, wherever you podcast. Song Cycle is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about its network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org slash podcasts. That's all for now, songsters. We'll see you next time. How did you get into the world of song? Oh, I'll tell you some other time. I don't want to be your interviewee. You're my guest. But (laughs) (laughs) when you start your podcast, I'll come be your first guest. (laughs) 